Magazines and Monsters, Episode 11, Marvel Treasury Edition, Number 9. Hey everybody, uh, Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange here with another episode of Magazines and Monsters. Uh, in this one, my guests and I will be covering Marvel Treasury Edition 9 from 1976. And my guest along for the ride is the man behind the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast, Kyle Benning. How are you, Kyle? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me aboard. Yeah, I mean, as soon as I thought, I want to talk about a treasury, you were the first uh, person that popped into my mind. So I thought, i got to reach out to you. And uh, I know uh, you have a huge love for these uh, giant-sized books. So I thought, I bet you he'll probably want to talk about them. And I couldn't remember if you ever talked about any specific one other than I know you were on, uh, I think it was uh, Treasury Cast, talking about that one uh, giant size issue that i'm having a hard time finding a, at a price i can afford so yeah, that was uh, yeah the whammo the uh, <laughs> yeah. biggest comic book ever made the, yeah so those are almost like uh twice treasury size is uh 21 wow. by 14 book roughly so if you have like the current uh, king size or monster size hardcore uh, hard covers that uh marvel's been putting out like the kirby is fantastic or kirby is mighty it's the same um height and with i guess those obviously you know that one i think was uh, around uh, 98 pages whereas those hardcovers are you know a couple hundred but uh yeah it's uh that was a huge book and so that was a lot of fun and then yeah i was in uh, one of the earlier episodes i want to say it was uh episode 10 of treasury cast where uh, rob and i covered uh, marvel treasury edition number two which is the first uh, fantastic four treasury that has the galactus saga in it amongst other things yeah, I think I do have that one. I think I have two FF uh, treasuries, but oh, those are always you know, a treat. But yeah, this one's really cool because it has four distinctly different, you know, stories, characters here. And it's just this one is a ton of fun. So that's why when I laid out how many I had and took a quick pick and sent it to you and said, hey, which one grabs you? And you said this one. I was like, yep, I'm all for it because, yeah, this one is just incredible. It's got a Submariner story, uh, Captain America and uh daredevil having a bit of a little fight here in the traditional <laughs> comic book of you know there's some shenanigans that makes our heroes fight and then thor and hulk and silver server and spider-man fighting it out so uh, some really neat stuff in here yeah it okay. is. it's, it's yeah. A, a great showcase of some classic marvel stories by classic marvel artists yeah oh my gosh and it's just it the Three out of the four artists that are on my Mount Rushmore are in this book. I mean, uh, you have John Buscema, Gene Colan, who's my favorite artist, and then, of course, the King Jack Kirby, too. So there's no way you can uh, go wrong with this one for sure. <laughs> okay, so I guess we're going to just you know run through each story real quick here. And not anything too super deep, but... Uh, you're going to tackle the Submariner story first here, and uh, that one is a uh, Stan Lee, Roy Thomas, John Buscema, Dan Adkins, Sam Rosen in the credits there. And uh, Dan Adkins, he's a pretty good inker. I really like how uh, his inks look over John Buscema's pencils. How about you? Yeah, yeah, that's a great pairing. I mean, it's I think it's probably pretty tough to make John Buscema look too bad, but he looks gorgeous here under uh, Dan Adkins' inks. Yeah, kind of speaking to the credits, it does always throw me when I open up uh, kind of towards the tail end of the Silver Age, beginning of the Bronze Age, right, where 
Stan was starting to script less books and people like Roy Thomas or Jerry Conway or Marvel and Len Wein were starting to come over and take over some of these writing duties, but it still mm -hmm. blows my mind that Stan Lee is the top writer. <laughs> there. It's Stan Lee editor. I mean, it's going to be the only book, any, any Marvel from this era is going to be the only book you'll ever see where you open it up in the, the biggest and first credit is the editor. So, <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes I feel like DC books, man, sometimes they didn't even hardly have any credits or they'd have no. like, Artist and writer, and that was it. You didn't get letterer, colorist, nothing for yep. many years past when Marvel started doing it. <laughs> yes. So, mm. uh, yeah. So, I draw draw from that what you will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wanna, right. I don't want to open that can of worms here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, well, you can just go to Twitter tomorrow, and there'll be somebody uh, hashing that one out. I can guarantee yep. you that. That's like a daily battle. Yep. <laughs> so, all right. Well, yeah. If you want to get into it here and talk a little bit about Subby. Yeah, so we have Mar Marvel uh, Treasury Edition number nine, Giant Superhero Team Up. Uh, this one originally went on sale around December 1st, 1975, with $1.50 cover price. Uh, so it had a 1976 cover date. And as we open it up, that first page you're going to see is this epic splash, splash page of uh, Submariner battling out uh, the thing, or Ben Grimm, uh, on the page of a newspaper. And as you mentioned, mm -hmm. yes, it was written, scripted by Roy Thomas, penciled by John Bishima. So our story opens with a woman recapping the events of the Submariner and Thing, duking it out as she scrawls it all down in her journal. The events begin to unfold for us on a rooftop as Namor cradles a collapsing Lady Dorma, who is in need of her specially formulated pills that allow her to breathe the oxygen of the surface world. As Namor and Diane, a I guess Earth woman or, or uh, human <laughs> human woman uh, mm -hmm. who uh, knows Lady Dorma uh, begin to head back to an apartment to fetch the pills, uh, but then they're ambushed by three poli policemen intent on taking the Submariner in for the death of Paul Destin. Uh, this battle uh, that is going to be referenced throughout uh, that Namor had with Paul Destin had occurred in the previous issue of Submariner number seven, and so this this story is originally from Submariner number eight, uh, which was originally from 1968. If I didn't say that earlier. So Namor staves off the cops and takes the air with Lady Dorma, then doubles back and meets up with Diane in a cab to venture back to her place and get Dorma the pills and rest she needs to recover. They did all this to you know, elude the, the police chase and the, they had copters on standby. So <laughs> uh, on the street in a cab was the most discreet way to, to make it uh, out of the police dragnet. <laughs> so while Lady Dorma is recovering, we get a flashback within our flashback tale here as Namor recounts his interactions with the surface world prior to World War II. He recounts his attacks on New York City in retaliation for their pollution and destruction of his undersea kingdom. Uh, we see his meeting and subsequent tragic love affair with Betty Dean, as well as his epic battle with the android Human Torch, and of course some good old-fashioned Nazi smashing. Can't have a World War II era flashback of the Invaders-type characters without uh, some good old Nazi punching. <laughs> so as Namor wraps up his story, a news broadcast over the radio talks about the death of Paul Destin and the strange, powerful helmet that was in his possession. This sets Namor off. He must get his hands on the helmet and destroy it. It is too powerful and too dangerous to be on the loose here in the surface world. The police seem to think so as well, and their police commissioner calls both the Avengers and the Fantastic Four to take it to Washington for examining. Ben Grimm, the Thing, answers the call, and after smoking a stogie while getting an explanation of why the crown made of an unknown metal emitting mysterious radiation must be protected, the Thing takes off uh, for the Pentagon on his sky cycle. Meanwhile, Namor had been treading water in the river, lurking near where the crown was being held. 
He's unable to tolerate the pollution any longer, so he takes for the skies, only to coincidentally run into Ben Grimm with the crown, initiating a fun-filled battle royale for the next eight pages. And what a battle it is. You got them knocking each other out of the sky, they're battling in water, there's street rebel galore, they're punching each other through buildings, they're throwing heavy machinery, we get a glorious Imperious Rex and clobbering time shell. <laughs> it's a no-holds-barred, all-out rumble in the concrete jungle that finally comes to an end. Just as Namor is about to deliver what could be a lethal blow to the thing, he's stopped by a voice calling out to him from the shadows. A woman by the name of Mrs. Prentice, pleading with Namor to end his wanton destruction before he does something that he would regret. And then she departs, and so does Namor with the crown in tow. He's going to take it out to, uh, I believe, South America, uh, South Antarctica, excuse me, the South Pole, Antarctica, uh, stow it away and hide it. And so our story ends back on the journal and its author, who happens to be the widow, Mrs. Prentice, who Namor did once know as Betty Dean. Yeah, no, re- uh, no relation to James there. But yeah, wow, this is so much fun. Like I one of the reasons I really like this one is because they seem pretty evenly matched uh, up until the very end there. Like you said, you know what I mean? Like I, I always think in my head like that Namor is probably a little bit stronger than the thing, but it's a really good fight. It's pretty evenly matched, and that's that's why I like it. Because usually, when you know the thing fights, you know, like the Hulk, you you know he's got to really uh, pull some trickery out of his uh, hat there to be able to hang with the Hulk, because the Hulk is just so much more powerful than him. But this is a really good fight. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I I kind of think in my head canon, so I I don't know what the Ohatmu has to say about this, but I kind of think is the three kind of. At this time, regular heroes that you would encounter in the Marvel Universe that are kind of that top tier are the Hulk, Thor, and Namor. And then Ben Grimm, the thing, is just kind of the next level below those guys. It's uh, mm. kind of how I view it in my head. Uh, but And yeah, he's kind of like, uh, I guess I think of probably the, the best allegory is that uh, pre-Super Soldier serum Steve in the first uh, Captain America movie where you know he could do this all day. He just keeps getting knocked down and, and stand up. And standing back up because he's just got that that moxie, and that's kind of what I think the uh, the thing has, and that's why he's able to go to toe to toe with these guys that are the next tier above him. Yeah, and Ben Grimm for me, I always liked him even when I was a little kid, but I can tell you, I loved him even more once I learned, you know, who Jack Kirby was, and that he created him, and he's kind of like, you know, uh, basically a comic book version of jack kirby you know in some ways that really i was like wow i really love this character then you know once you you get a little bit older and you can find some of these things out yeah definitely definitely his analog character that uh he puts into his stories wow but this artwork i mean you can even look at a page where it's just all you know battle scenes and even that very last page where it's just you know like you said uh betty there you know with just some dialogue it's just man John Buscema and Dan Adkins was a great combination in this one. Like I, you just go page after page and there's not one page, not one panel that you think, well, that's not that great. Or, oh, they should have done a little bit better here or there. It's just, oh, it's fantastic. Just to maybe stare at this all day. Yeah, exactly. He can uh, do no wrong as an artist in, in my eyes. He is definitely one of my favorites uh, without a doubt. And I actually, I think um, from a superhero a storytelling comic artist of time. I, I think he's definitely one of the greatest. Uh, and so if I had to think about it, even the, the fire and water guys, they often list uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez as the upper echelon of superhero comic artists. They say he is the greatest uh, superhero comic artist of all time. For me, that would probably be John Bashima. So taking the 
any sort of character design or co-potting just out of the equation. Just if you had a universe already populated with characters and you wanted to tell the most epic story ever with them, I think it would probably be for me personally, John Bushima or Steve Root would be the two artists I would tap to bring this universe to life if all the designs were done. So that's not to disparage anybody else or anything like that. I mean, I love Jack Kirby. I think when you factor in his inventiveness and character design and just concept generation and everything. So everything outside of just graphic storytelling, but all the other creative processes that go in, I think Jack Kirby is probably unparalleled or unmatched. But if you had someone else kind of churning out all those ideas and then someone to tell a story with them, I think John Bashima is probably with Steve Rude kind of in that upper echelon class. Uh, I think they stand alone for me personally. Yeah. John Buscema, just when I even think of not only his superhero work, which he kind of said on numerous occasions, wasn't his favorite thing to do, but man, like his, the Conan stories he did. Oh my gosh. I could just, that's again, artwork. You could just stare at that artwork. If I was going to start buying original art, John Buscema was somebody I would start buying original art from if I could afford it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wish they'd do more uh, artist editions uh, of his. I, I know there's one on the horizon here being released, but I think to this point, the only one that's been released has been the uh, Silver Surfer one. Uh, mm. and unfortunately, they were, I think they were only able to find uh, two full issues uh, for that uh, to go into that and then parts of others. Wow. Uh, yeah. But, you know, you talked about the, the page layout stuff. Uh, you know, the, you know, the book or the, the treasury edition is kind of bookended here with uh, Bushima Arts. We have the opening story here and the, the final story is also drawn by him. And if you go through and you kind of compare the panel layouts between the, the two stories, it's just drastic night and day. So it really speaks to his versatility as an artist, just kind of the types of stories he's telling, uh, how he lays them out. It varies quite a bit from, from one story to the next. You know, it's not like he kind of reuses stuff. I mean, he's a very prolific artist. And here you have two great showcases very different layout styles uh, the story at the end that we'll see is mostly uh, like five or six panel kind of grid layouts and even within that there's, there's some variety but here in this opening story i mean you have the, the opening page blast and you have pages with two panels or three panels or four but even when you get to that that four to six within this story they're so unique and, and differently laid out it's just a it's a really from a academic breakdown of storytelling art is it's just a really fascinating study just to see how awesome he is and how how much variety he has in his panel layouts and, and storytelling yeah and then this treasure edition too i really enjoy because after each story there's like these little pinups that are like uh kind of sideways on the pages in between the next story and there's a really cool you know submariner prince namor the submariner and uh, you have the fantastic four in the background there and is that a Tuma and uh, a couple of just random surface dwellers that he probably wants to beat up <laughs> in this Submariner yes. one? <laughs> yeah, that that uh, that image is from uh, the issue one cover of the Submariner series. In that uh, original issue cover, all the background is kind of like washed out. So it's almost like water and it's almost like... Uh, bubble images that don't really have a whole lot of depth. So it's nice to see it here colored differently where all those characters are colored in the normal colors they would be. Yeah. So and then we have the really striking the, image. The thing right next to him too, with a bunch of Kirby crackle, it looks like <laughs> Yeah, as he's getting ready to punch somebody. It looks like that's a really cool image too. That's like, wow, I would love to have a poster of that one for sure. Mm. Yeah. Such good stuff. Okay. So then after that we have, uh, 
um, in combat with Captain America. So that one is pretty cool, too. I really enjoy this one because anytime you can get hero to fight hero or villain to hey, fight real villain. Real quick. Yeah. I, sorry, I wanted to talk about Roy's writing a little bit. Oh, your, yeah, yeah, yeah. take go, on this. Sorry ahead. about that. Go ahead. No, um, no, you're good. Go so ahead. The, the reveal at the end, uh, you know, it's been a while since I've revisited this one. So uh-huh. that one surprised me again. I, I forgot it was Betty Dean. And so it was quite a, uh, a oh, yeah. bunch of jaw-dropping uh, review that, reveal there. And so... Um, yeah, you know the kind of the whole way the the story's laid out. You know, with it starting with the journal entry and then kind of the first person you interact with outside of Namor and Dorma is Diane. So you kind of assume it's her recounting the story in journal. So it, yeah, it's kind of quite the the punch then that it ends up being is you know his former lover Betty. So if you actually want to get kind of a modern day retelling of this era of Norma Namor, I mean they've uh, Golden Age Namor, excuse me. Um, you know, they've reprinted a ton of Namor Golden Age stuff, but there was actually last summer they did the Marvel snapshots and the way those are is just one shots kind of set in between the Marvel story by Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross. There's a Submariner oh. one uh, that's written by Alan Brenner and Jerry Ordway does the artwork on that. Wow. Uh, and that's set in the late 40s. I believe it's like 1947. So it's after World War II. So it's Namor kind of getting a little stir crazy and, and restless. Uh after World War II, trying to settle down with Betty, she's starting to age. And, you know, he's still super young. And, you know, the other cast of characters around them kind of dealing with things like PTSD and, the, you know, the taking a, a little deeper look at what often is portrayed as kind of that Norman Rockwell classic era of Americana and seeing yeah. some of the, the darker things that laid there, uh, you know, you know, post World War II era. So that's a really fascinating read. So again, kind of touches on the same uh, era of, of Namor and his relationship with Betty that we get a little snapshot here. So check that one out if you haven't. Uh, obviously with Roy Thomas here, you're always going to get a <laughs> little uh, <laughs> wink and a nod to the Golden Age uh, since oh, yeah. he wrote the story and you know that he's probably the biggest <laughs> Golden Age comic fan of all time. So it was nice to have that uh, Namor Human Torch, uh, you know, flashback there. Roy is definitely one of my favorite writers. Uh, you know, mm. I think as a, as a kid, as I started to dive more into superhero comics and kind of broadening my horizons as a young comic reader, I, I think I was drawn to a lot more Roy's DC work, or I discovered that uh, more as a young kid. And that stuff remains some of my favorite DC stuff today. Obviously, it's still some of yours since you know, have a podcast covering the uh, All-Star Squadron uh, era and stuff. Uh, but I mm. think now, if I'm looking at it today that I think the storytelling style of Marvel and kind of the personal drama pieces that was such a staple of Marvel comics from, from this era, I think this Marvel stuff probably results in Roy's strongest body of work. Uh, and this is a great example of that. So I'm curious with you, obviously you have tackled a, a number of Roy's Marvel stories in into the weirdo weird with Herman, as well as tackling some of his DC stuff at the, you know, the, the world's on fire podcast. So having sampled, work from both things what do you think is is dc stuff better or is marvel stuff better i i would probably because i read his marvel stuff first um and i love his thor work um i I would probably say i enjoy his marvel stuff better because i think when he did all-star squadron which is awesome i think that was something he was really like itching to do for a long time and like you said because he was such a huge golden age fan you know, that was really like a passion project for him. And I think it's very good, but I do think um, when he was working at Marvel, 
you know, I think by the time he went for went to DC to do our all-star squadron, he was basically, you know, just given carte blanche to do whatever he wanted, basically because of what he had already done before, you know? So I think yep. when he was working for Marvel, especially early on there, there was more of a, a workman style, you know, like, uh, you know, a, I don't want to say a wage slave, but you know how it is when you're, you know, working and you're kind of feeling under the gun and you need paychecks and stuff like that. It's a little bit different than when you're kind of a little bit more set up in life and you're kind of doing what you want to do. Yep. But yeah, I think his Marvel stuff is great. I, I mean, DC as well. I haven't read a ton of his DC, you know, aside from <clears throat> the all-star squadron stuff, but um, yeah, his Marvel stuff. I, I don't know that I've read, I can't even remember if I've ever read a bad Roy Thomas story. You know, some, of course, are better than others. You know, he's everybody has their strong suits. But uh, at, at the very least, his stuff would be entertaining. You know, that's, that's what I'd say about that. Yep. For sure. But, well, speaking of uh, drama, you were just saying about how Roy could uh, <laughs> write some <laughs> drama. We're going to get some crazy drama in this next one. And this is, yeah, uh, pretty much over the top but uh it's uh i it gets me this gets me uh kind of chuckling so i don't mind a story like this one either coming up here because it might not be as you know uh poetic maybe as a, a roy thomas story but uh stanley man and his hyperbole and his trying to uh write dialogue with uh somebody that's in love but can't be with them and that kind of yeah. stuff always makes me laugh <laughs> yeah. Well, especially what's coming up here. I mean, this is in the tail end of his uh, run on the character of Daredevil. And I think it was getting late pretty early here. <laughs> so I think yeah. that's kind of like a running out of steam a little bit. But. Yeah. When I was reading this, you know, in preparation here, I was literally laughing. Like I was like, listen to this, like Daredevil and going back and forth with Foggy and Karen is just hilarious. <laughs> But um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, this one is uh, in combat with Captain America, and it's uh, originally Daredevil number forty-three from nineteen sixty-eight, and it's Lee writing and Gene Colan pencils and the infamous Vince Coletta on inks, and then uh, Artie Simic on uh, letters. But uh, all right, so this one starts out with Matt lamenting his feelings for Karen while training. Um, he tries to swing into action to help forget about her, but uh, is driven mad by being in close proximity to a crook that stole some radioactive material. Um, and then uh, he ends up fighting Captain America, who's, uh, I think it's at Madison Square Garden, and he's uh, you know doing a charity event and taking on all comers to uh, make some uh, make some dough for some people for some uh, charity. So uh, I really enjoyed this one. And like I said, mostly because of the fight between them. Cause I love seeing two heroes fight or two villains fight. But then, like I said, the, the dialogue is just hilarious, but man, that opening splash page, that is so cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah you yeah. touched on it here. I mean, there's some really strong panels and stuff, but Oof. now just knowing the elephant in the room here with the infamous uh, Vince Coletta. I just, especially <laughs> if I'm reading something for a podcast and I have to try to think of it or analyze it at all or look at it a little bit critically, I just can't help the nagging thing creeping into the back of my head is how different did these pencils look before he <laughs> ate this? I mean, so one thing mm -hmm. too, right, is Coletta's incline is the, um, can be pretty pleasing. Uh, he uh, is a great fit for how the, the finished product looks on a number of artists. I mean, some of his Thor issues on Jack Kirby look great, but then when you see the pencils and you see the, 
all the other elements that would seed things later in the story or enhance the the visual of this Korean scheming thing that have just been erased or outright ignored just drives you nuts. So you do you can't help but wonder when you look at some of this stuff of how much better that panel was or what potentially was was left out. You know, there are a few panels that are a little bland here, and that's not something I would typically associate with Gene Cole and a super detailed artist and dynamic artist. So I, I do wonder what things might have been hatcheted out here by uh, Coletta and you know in a typical normal size comic book especially being printed in the 60s you know it probably wasn't that big a deal but then when it gets blown up here this treasury format where you could really showcase that art knowing that some of that detail might be missing uh, it's just too bad yeah when it's you know a close-up or a small panel and it's showing you know Matt and Karen it's not something you would even think about or notice but that first splash page, I think you can really look at it and you think, like you said, I wonder what else was in the background there. And then the next page is just two big panels. Um, and the top one is just, you know, Matt doing like a somersault and a few dialogue, you know, caption boxes there. And it's just Nothing completely, black. Com yeah, completely <laughs> black. And it makes you think, hmm, I wonder if that's I don't know if that was what Gene was <laughs> trying to pull off there. <laughs> Well, and especially Gene, I mean, he's one of the ones you hear so many anchors or other artists just have such a fascination with his artwork and view it as a challenge, but also super engaging or enthralling to try to ink him because there's so much there to try to interpret and it could go either way. And I, with you being a, a huge Gene Colon fan, I am curious, are there any books out there that have, you know, like Gene's pencils and then as like the same, take the same image and have five different inkers interpret it and just see how different the finished product is? Is there something out there that exists like that? I, I would love to do more reading or, or research on that. Yeah, I don't know of anything like that at all. I really don't. I mean, his yeah, his work is isn't something that I've seen too many times. They've published things of you know that kind of nature, like artist editions or anything like that. I don't. It's just kind of weird. I mean, I know the you know some of the other names carry some more weight, like you know Kirby and Ramita and stuff like that, but. There really isn't a whole lot out there that I know of, of, you know, his work. I mean, I do have some stories where he did the artwork for them and it, they just did just his pencils. Um, and those are, like you Nathaniel said, Nathaniel Dusk. Huh? Yeah, Nathaniel Dusk. And then I think it was a, I think at some point him and Marv Wolfman did, I think they put it out in like maybe four single issues by the trade where it's a vampire story, some kind of Dracula. Uh, book and i think it's just his pencils in them and uh, it's just incredible and like you said it looks when you look at that and then look at you know the story like this especially you know when it's blown up and the bigger panels and splash pages and stuff like that it does make you think like yeah i'm sure there was a lot more going on in the background there yeah, yeah. and then but yeah all the dialogue it's just hilarious you know matt jumping around training trying to be like i, I can't you know i love karen but i can't let her know i'm daredevil and can't let her be with me and all that stuff and <laughs> just hilarious some of it and you know then you have uh finally matt decides he's gonna tell her off to make her go away because they kind of embrace and <laughs> yeah what does he say to her women you're all alike you try to own a man well nobody's owning matt murdoch if you're going <laughs> then, then go and good riddance and i'm thinking nobody would say that man come on <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, Stanley! Like, wow, that was that was crazy. Like, that just made me laugh. In, the, in no situation on the planet would that happen. And then 
he starts flipping out and throwing stuff around and smashing stuff like having a temper tantrum. <laughs> yeah. That's too funny. But yeah, again, that page where he's like smashing stuff and throwing stuff around very, you know, Daredevil looks great, but then there's literally like nothing in the background. It almost looks like at one point he's near a window, but then the window looks like it's just all green in the background. And I'm thinking, uh, something doesn't seem right there. And I mean, you can't, it, I can't find colorist credits this far back for stuff either, which is kind of a shame. Yeah, it is weird that uh, they did not have chorus credits on this. But I always do wonder if uh, you know sometimes it's the inker, or you just assume that you know Marie Severin did a lot of artist touch-up and stuff. If she was just maybe the staff colorist at the time, or did most of the, the color hold work, I don't know. Yeah, I mean Matt then kind of does. A, we have a little like what a one pager basically of uh, him recounting his origin too, which you know. It was only Daredevil was only four years old by the time they, uh, you know, had this story come out. So I don't know how often they did that, but sometimes I feel like, you know, maybe like the Spider-Mans of the world, every like four or five issues, they were recounting their origin yeah. for some reason. <laughs> well, I think the whole point of putting Captain America on the cover and having them square off with that is to sort of bring in new readers. So if you're grabbing a new audience because it's a Captain America appearance, it's a good idea to stick a little six panel flashback in the middle of the story to give his origin recap of how he got to be this way, which yeah, I imagine that, look just if they employed that for that reason, I'm looking through the daredevil cover gallery here. The first 50 issues, he runs up against Submariner uh, in issues seven, uh, 12, 13 and 24. He runs into Kazar 16 and 27. He runs into Spider-Man 30. Thor was involved. And then 37, 38, he clashed with Dr. Doom. So imagine there's probably a little bit of a least <laughs> lip service to his origin and all those issues to try to attract new readers. Yeah, for sure. But uh, the pretty good fight scenes here between uh, Cap and uh, Daredevil. I thought they were pretty good. Again, some of the backgrounds sometimes are a little, you know, uh, sparse. But I guess, you know, the action is really what they're trying to sell here anyway. But yeah, some really neat stuff because, you know, Daredevil, like I said, he kind of goes a little because, you know, radiation, that was the, the catch all back in the uh, 60s so he gets you know a little nutty over radiation and then start trying to beat the crap out of cap and it's a pretty good fight actually i i would love to see like a pie chart or tally of uh the number of story plots that stanley's involved in that involve radiation <laughs> magnets or transistors <laughs> as major plot developments that's driving the action there yeah. So why someone's acting a certain way. Oh yeah, that radiation was that was it's like everything was for like it seemed like for about a five year period, radiation was everything. Like um it's just it makes me kind of chuckle when I think about it. Like, did they just think people didn't know what radiation was so they could just use it? Or it was just like yeah, it was kind of convenient because it was in the headlines. Yeah. Obviously uh I guess cultural uh, buzzword that uh, everyone's aware of if they're in the, the Cold War and the atomic age. And then they're trying to say, I mean, a couple of places I looked at with credits and different things about this issue, they're trying to say that at some point there's a Peter Parker appearance in this. Yeah. And I'm thinking, where? But there is a page where there's a kid with a camera. Yeah, that looks just like it. Yeah. I'm thinking, oh, but I there's nothing that calls out uh, Peter <laughs> specifically. Yeah, in the uh, top right panel of page 41 there, snapping the action. I'm like, oh, that kind of looks like Peter, but then there's nothing that mentions it, so... 
Yeah, like, why didn't they at least say, hey, have him say, like, yeah, I'm going to get these pictures of the bugle right away or something. He probably had his press pass on his uh, uniform and it just got erased. <laughs> Cladding to... Yeah, got it got it got lost in the in the inking process. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was a that's a pretty good story. Not too bad there. I mean, like I said, a little over the top. But then, man, here you go with those two uh, pinups. Then between this story and the next one, it looks like a, what a Captain America Starenko image there, and then Daredevil. I'm not sure who did that one. Yeah, that Daredevil one. That's an early cover. I think that's. Kazar there below him. So that's one of those yeah. Kazar team ups, I believe. So yeah. it might be a cover to issue 24. Yeah, it's that's way post Wally Wood there. So I'm not sure who was doing Daredevil back then. Because I know Gene Colan did something eventually and then left and then came back again. But that doesn't look like Gene at all. That's like really too, like more Ramita ish. Yeah, Ramita did covers for a while. He did do some issues. I think Colan took over with issue number. 21 and then went up through 49 and then that's when Roy came on with issue 15 I think Barry Windsor Smith did the first couple issues that Roy wrote and then after that uh, Colin came back okay here it says pinups taken from covers of Daredevil 12 and Cap 111 so Daredevil 12 I mean I'm sure that's probably that you know, I'm thinking who else would run in there in the, in the last second yeah. to do stuff okay. it pro- probably was a Romita yeah, John Romita did do the Daredevil 12 issue, and that was a Kazar issue. That's not the cover, but so it must be taken from the story within. Or yeah, an image page. image inside. Yeah, that's funny. But yeah, two really cool images. Like I said, I, that's something I really do like about these, uh, especially this Treasury edition. You know, they throw a couple extras in there once in a while. I love those pinups in between each one for sure. They're the best. Yep. But uh, all right, so uh, what about the next one here? That's the our, Thor and Battle and the Hulk. All right, so our next one is Mighty Thor Battles the Incredible Hulk. It was originally published in Journey into Mystery number 112, uh, which Journey into Mystery is a series that Thor debuted in with issue number 83, and then that would be renamed as Thor with issue number 126. Uh, This story originally had a January 1965 cover date, scripted by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Chick Stone, lettered by Sam Rosen. The story opens with a crowd of young boys arguing over who is stronger, the Incredible Hulk or Mighty Thor. And these kids even have these awesome cutouts of each character's <laughs> heads that they're waving back and forth like they're picketing. <laughs> and uh, they ultimately, they look like giant popsicles or ice cream, like novelty treats. Yeah. Anyway, Thor flies in and starts talking with the group like, hey, quit, quit fighting. And uh, recounts the time that he and old Jade Jaws squared off against each other in the battle detailed in the pages of Avengers number three where the Submariner and the Hulk had attacked Giant Man, Iron Man, and Thor in a cave in Gibraltar. Uh, of course, this was all lead up, the lead-up story to, that would result in Captain America being discovered in a block of ice and thawed out there in Avengers number 4. Uh, Thor then reveals that there was more to the battle between uh, he and Hulk than what was recapped in the newspaper, events that only he and the Hulk knew about, that is, until now. It happened at the height of the battle. While my fellow Avengers were trying to find a way to stop Prince Namor without actually injuring him, the Hulk and I were all but forgotten in the shadows. The minutes ticked by as we both fought so fiercely, we didn't realize that we were becoming separated from the others. Never had seen such rage, such fury in a living being. The Hulk fought like a demon possessed, actually tearing out sections of the cave wall itself in a desperate attempt to trap me. By merely whirling my enchanted hammer, I... At a certain prescribed speed, I caused a dimension disruption, making it impossible for the Hulk to break through. 
Then within my dimension disruption, a plan began to take shape in my mind. And so utilizing the secrets of the ancient Norse gods, I sent a message through the infinite void past the rainbow bridge itself to Asgard. And noble Odin on a distant hunting expedition heard my summons and made reply. So Thor requested to Odin the ability to keep his power for five minutes of battle without the use of his hammer so that he and Hulk could truly test each other's metal in the hand-to-hand combat. Now, no weapons, no other powers that, you know, normally would come with being the God of Thunder, just pure strength against the Hulk's savage strength. So at this time, if Thor uh, was on Earth and he let Mjolnir out of his grasp for more than a minute, he would revert back to Donald Blake. So Odin grants Thor's wish, and so he and the Hulk square off, just knocking the crap out of each other for the next five minutes and the next eight pages or so of story. Each momentarily gains the upper hand before the other battles back, uh, comes from behind, and then uh, seems to get the upper hand and the advantage. Uh, this is an absolute epic knockout, dragout fight. It ends with a draw when the roof of a subterranean tunnel that they were fighting in collapses, uh, which separates the two gladiators. Both titans that would eventually make the, their way back to the surface, and from there we kind of resume the events of Avengers number three. Uh, ultimately, uh, their battle was decided to be a draw, uh, Thor gets his powers back once they get back to the surface because the uh, five minutes have gone up. So Mjolnir is back to its regular self and he has all of his you know, God of Thunder powers. Uh, as Thor's tale ends, he tells the boys that he can only guess at an answer for who is actually strongest, but he leaves them with one thought. It's not the one possessing the greater power who is important, is the one who uses his power wisely in the cause of justice. So Thor flies off deep in thought as our tale ends looking at the Hulk alone in the desert, savagely bashing in rocks with one thing on his mind, smashing <laughs> Thor forever. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a good one, man. Like you said, that opening splash page, they look like those like ice cream sandwiches or something made out of Thor and Hulk's yeah. heads. <laughs> and the guy holding uh, the Hulk one looks like a little Jimmy Olsen there to me. If they would have put a couple of freckles on him, maybe that could have been Jimmy Olsen saying, dumb, huh? So how come nobody ever licked him? <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, wow, Kirby and Chick Stone, man, that that splash page is crazy. Like every one of those kids fighting is like distinct and detailed and different. And then, you know, you have the background of the buildings and stuff like that. Like that is a great splash page. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, it is. Mm. Yeah, yeah, too. You know, too good. It seems, it's it's kind of dumb, right? But it's also an interesting hook because these kids arguing over this. I mean, flash forward sixty years, and this would be the type of argument that would happen in a forum or on Twitter or whatever of which characters <laughs> uh, best. Yeah, and uh, the people doing it are essentially the target audience for the the book back in nineteen sixty five. So it's a nice way to, I guess, for mm-hmm. the entry point for the reader, and then you just unleash Kirby uh, to do his thing of. Mm. You know, two of the strongest characters in the Marvel Universe, just no holds barred going after it. And then it blown up to the Treasury size format is just awesome. I mean, this is perfect. Uh, they did reprint the story just recently in one of the uh, uh, what are the, True Believers reprints, the dollar reprints. And mm. so I have a dollar reprint of this and uh, gave it to my son who's seven and he loves this. This is one of his favorite stories. He's read this one uh, a bunch. Uh, they also did... Uh, Journey into Mystery, uh, I think it's 114, has uh, Thor versus the Absorbing Man. He loves that one. And then another one of his favorites is Thor number 142 uh, reprint that they did in True Believers, and that's Thor versus the the Super Scroll. So he... uh, Oh, cool. 
he loves those. And so this story still uh, hooks the imagination and uh, wonder of seven-year-olds here in uh, almost 60 years after it was originally conceived. Yeah, which is crazy if you think about it. But, you know, if you're a kid and you just saw, like, the Avengers movie in 2012 that just came out, I mean, uh, wow, I guess that's nine years ago now. But, you know, if you just saw that movie when you're a kid and you're a little bit older now, like page 48, you know, there's that top panel where you see an Iron Man and Submariner up front, you know, locked in uh, combat. And then there's Hulk in the background. Who else? There's Giant Man and Thor and just, oh, what a great page. And, you know, if you're a fan of even just the MCU and you're a kid and you're seeing these, you're like, whoa, this is really cool. I can't imagine you would love this. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Not to <laughs> keep beating a dead horse here, but I am glad it's Chick wow. Stone that inked it, or I wonder if that top panel you mentioned, if any of those characters would be in the background, <laughs> <laughs> if it was uh, someone else inking it instead of Chick Stone. So Chick Stone is a, a great inker for, for Kirby. I think he was probably one of the, the first inkers I saw on, on Kirby. So that initial draw that that i got to kirby uh, a lot of that uh, was under uh, chick stones kind of finishes there so really love that combination uh, this story uh this was actually the second time it already been reprinted and at this point the story was about 11 years old uh, when this treasury came out so it's also reprinted in marvel tales number 25 which is one of the very convoluted paths to which uh, marvel started uh, reprinting thor so marvel had uh, it was awesome, but it's also very confusing. Uh, Bronze Age reprints of uh, their kind of Silver Age stuff, which at that point was only, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 years old. And so for the Thor stuff, uh, ran through Marvel Tales. There was some Marvel feature issues. And then, of course, a lot of the annuals, starting with like annual two, three, and four of most titles would be mostly reprint stories. And then after that, you had Marvel Spectacular, which I think ran like 16 or 17 issues, reprinted yeah. Thor comics. But they never reprinted something that had already been previously reprinted. So by the time you get to Marvel Spectacular, it was like picking up with like Journey into Mystery, at like something like 116 or 117 or something <laughs> like that. And so you had to piece together all the other stuff from the, the Marvel's Tales reprints and the Marvel feature ones and, and everything else. So, uh, yeah, this issue, uh, Journey into Mystery number 112, by this point, they were also doing the Tales of Asgard backups. So Journey of Mystery had two kind of Thor or Asgard-centric stories in each issue. And so the one that came with this uh, was the Coming of Loki, which I would have first encountered in the Fireside Books collection, Bring on the Bad Guys, mm. uh, which I picked up from my local library. And that was actually my introduction to the bigger Marvel Universe and definitely to the work of Jack Kirby. So that was a super instrumental uh, book in my childhood. And so I don't know when this episode is being released but relatively recently uh by the time this gets released there will be uh, an episode on my podcast feed uh that is a retro review look back at uh, the bring on the bad guys fireside book collection so a little shameless plug there oh cool no that's awesome i'm glad to hear it i can't wait to listen to that but yeah this i one of the things that honestly the first comics i ever read in my life was at a local library there was a uh a library edition of, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, DC put out a book. It was probably in the 1970s or very early 1980s. Um, and it had just origin stories for everybody. Yeah. It was Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. It was great. Yeah, it was like the origin of DC heroes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I would go to the library and read it over and over and over. I loved it. It was like the greatest thing ever because, you know, when you're a little kid, you might see Super Friends on television, but you don't know what the origins of those characters really are. They didn't. 
I don't really think they got into that too much. So when I found a book, like, well, this book tells you everything, like everything about them. So I was just like enamored with that book. Yeah, you had that, and then you had the you know from the '30s to '70s hardcover books too, of like Superman and Captain Marvel or Shazam and Batman. Yeah, I can't remember if there's Wonder Woman or those. And then DC did put out three books through uh, Fireside, uh, but there was like a, a romance, a war, and then a science fiction book. Whereas Fireside with Marvel, they, they put out they put out a ton of activity books, but I think they put out ten or twelve uh, kind of collection trade paperback of, of superhero material as well. So bring on the bad guys was number three of that. Uh, another really cool one was uh, Marvel's like famous battles or whatever. And that includes uh, some of the stories that are in here. I think uh, this uh, Hulk Thor one is, is also in their collection. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then for a minute here, when I was reading the story, I guess I missed a uh, caption box or, you know, dialogue or something here. And I thought, you know, Thor throws his hammer at the Hulk, and the Hulk catches it and starts swinging it around, tries to hit Thor with it. And I'm like, wait a minute, he can't do that. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. It, <laughs> the, Odin took the enchantment off of it, so <laughs> it's okay now. Because then Thor's like, he did, He doesn't know he can lift it only because its magic power is gone for the next five minutes. Because the Hulk's even thinking to himself, like, well, I must be stronger than ever. Now I can lift it, and I couldn't yeah. before. <laughs> yeah, and then when they get back to the surface world, I actually think it's in... Uh, Hulk's hand when the enchantment returns and then it flies out of his hand right into Thor's hand as he's kind of being held by the the Submariner. Yeah, but yeah, oh, like I said too, you know, just like the panels before John Buscema, it's like the fights are just, there's just always really good stuff here with them too. Like everybody, it's like one minute one has the upper hand and the next minute the other one does. And that's something I do love about Marvel, how they kind of always portray those two guys that they're like on equal footing. I really like that a lot. Yep. Mm, and then they're going with two pinups here after that story a, a thor and a hulk and i think those are both ramita images if i'm reading this correctly it's uh and that does look very ramita the hulk especially but yeah awesome i love those two images too they look really cool they'd be good posters too need to scan these and like blow them up or something <laughs> yeah they would I, I would do wonder that they did put out kind of like a artist edition of just pinups that was uh I don't remember the exact name of it. It's, it's relatively affordable compared to some of the other artist editions. It's more like, I think you can probably get it for like 30 bucks off of Amazon, but it's nothing but wow. pinups. So I am curious if some of these pinups that are in this treasury edition are in their original black and white line art in that collection. Yeah. Well, I need to start being smarter when they come out with things and I'm like, Oh, Hey, that looks pretty cool. I need to buy it because then if you wait around and it goes out of print, it's, you know, it's insane. It's it doubles, triples, quadruples in price. And then I'm like, well, I can never afford that. So forget it. But I need to start grabbing stuff when it comes right out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes when you go from Amazon and places like that, they offer a, a little bit of a discount anyway. So you're not even paying the cover usually when it comes right out or your pre-order or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. I guess we're ready to move on to the next one. Um this one is The Surfer and the Spider. Uh, the first time I ever read this one, it was in a reprint. Um, the original is Silver Surfer 14 from uh, 1970. But what was that? Sur there was a Silver Surfer reprint series where I think they reprinted yeah. all of it, didn't they? Fantasy masterpieces, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And that's right. This was the first one I ever bought I thought, oh, I'm never going to be able to get the original. So I'll get this one for like a couple bucks. Yeah, and I don't have any of those original fantasy masterpieces. But what I've heard in... Marvel would do this even up into the early 2000s when they would do trade paperbacks is the page count was different than the original issues. So what they would do is the 
the stories were a little bit hatcheted. I think there was one full less page than the original. And so they would try to clip panels out and condense the story. Oh, yeah, I have heard about that, too, which, you know, I guess if you don't know any better and that's the only one you have. But I'll have to check to see uh, if this because I'm pretty sure I I guess I think that was the first one I ever bought. I don't have the whole fantasy masterpieces series. I think I have like maybe eight or ten of them. But I know I have this one because, you know, when I was a little kid, I was like, I love Spider-Man. So I'm like, all right, let's get this. This looks pretty cool. You know, again, two heroes are going to fight it out. So that's that's going to grab me right away. Yeah, and that would have came out around the same time as the Tales to Astonish Volume 2, which was the name of a reprint series. And so that ran about the same length, uh, 16 or so issues, so it reprinted like the first 16 issues of, of Namor. Yeah, I have a few of those too and love those. Like, I don't know, they might have done the same thing with those, you know, cut a panel here and there that they didn't feel was really adding a whole lot to get a page count or something like that. But those are yeah. definitely cool too, because again, it's John Buscema artwork, I think, in just about all of them, if not all of them, isn't it? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I yeah. think unless um, maybe Colin does the last couple of those, but yeah, I can't remember how. I know it's at least the first 12. I was thinking maybe it got to 15 or 16 uh, that it reprinted. A lot of times, you know, exact same cover images. Sometimes they just mirror them or flip them. So like the the pinup that we looked at earlier of, of Namor with his trident in his right hand, I think that image is flipped so it's in his left hand in the uh, cover of uh, Tales to Astonish. That's funny, them trying to just, you know, make it look similar, but just slightly different. That's interesting. Okay, so yeah, the surfer and the spider. Um, uh, This one is, uh, it shows the surfer stops two uh, meteorites from colliding in Earth's atmosphere. But the resulting explosion uh, knocks him to Earth and he falls into the uh, ocean. And it's uh, inside a nearby apartment. A father chastises his son for watching superhero cartoons and reading comic books. Then the surfer uh, regains his bearings. But as he soars on his board, he runs into Spider-Man, and they have a tussle. So what do you think of this one? I really enjoy it, um, and partially because of the uh, the dad getting on the kid for uh, being into comics and superheroes. I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. So, I mean, the, the little kid here is kind of like your your reader hook or your entry point, right? That's mm-hmm. who the audience associates with, and he's giving you all that advice dad, which I'm sure... A lot of readers do, and I don't know. This is 1970, so it's 15 years removed from this, from the the Senate hearings and the whole seduction of the innocent stuff mm-hmm. of 1955. But you can't help but think that that maybe tinges the the dad's <laughs> anger a little bit, and so. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he had a, he had a bad day at work, I guess. So it's <laughs> yeah, he's really pissed off, and then the kid just kind of tries to explain to him like, "Hey, I just like this," and he flips at him some more and tells him to go to his room. Yeah. I'm like, wow, that thought he's tough, man. <laughs> yeah. And then of course he sees the surfer flying by, but oh my gosh, yeah, another one with you know John Buscema here and Dan Adkins, and I just they can do no wrong for me. I mean, my gosh, even just panels of this kid sitting in his room or talking, or I mean, I think it's page sixty-four, that very top panel on page sixty-four where the surfer's on his board and he's like has his arms extended to kind of blast the two meteorites that are coming towards each other. Oh, I love that's one of my favorite panels ever. Mm. Oh yeah, that's a great one. Oh my gosh. And then you see even those two guys, there's like two astronauts. Is that what I think those guys are like? Yeah, they're in the space station. Yeah, like a really neat little like one panel. It's just super neat. Like detail or two guys there. It's oh it's great, man. Those those guys are just incredible. Hmm. 
man and the surfer anytime he's just even you know thinking or on his board or whatever he just looks incredible and then they do a pretty good job with spider-man too you know because it's john Buscema did draw a little bit of spider-man there what was that late silver age i think yeah yep but yeah it's he even spider-man looks super neat too here it's like it's i do have a little issue with uh you know, Spider-Man being able to hang with uh, the Silver Surfer here when they're <laughs> kind of going at it. I'm thinking to myself, uh, I don't think Spidey's really on that level. Yeah, no. <laughs> but he's also one of Stan's pet characters, so that's... Uh... Yeah, he, he was the franchise back then, so... Yeah. I mean, he does go, uh, does hang in there with uh, Superman as well in that Treasury Edition. So. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of hilarious. Like, you're really going to web up the Silver Surfer and it's going to even hold him for a second. I'm kind of like, what? But I do like the, you know, how sometimes Spider-Man is a little bit like, you know, the Silver Surfer in some of his monologues. But in this one, it's, it's you know, the Silver Surfer is just like this, like, you know, he just wants to be left alone, basically. He's almost like the Hulk. Just leave me alone. And Spider-Man kind of just keeps harassing him and attacking him. And he gets pissed off. And, you know, then it's like it really gets crazy because, you know, the the police show up and the kid gets involved and yeah, really good stuff. Yeah, the the Silver Surfer kind of ongoing series here, I think it ran eighteen issues, is kind of depressing in a whole, right? Because it yeah stems from the Surfer has lost this ability to soar the cosmos, right? His punishment from Galactus is well, you love this world so much. Why don't you try staying here, buddy? And so he's seen <laughs> all the wonders that the universe has to offer, and now he's stuck on a planet. So he's essentially a, a space hippie wandering around trying to discover mm-hmm. mankind. He, he gave up the entire cosmos from this planet and they essentially just, every issue is humanity rubbing his nose in it of just how shitty humanity is. <laughs> <laughs> he's got to be thinking, I sacrificed all that for these turds. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so. Yeah. You can tell he's like, what? Well, there's one line of dialogue. I can't remember where it at, where it's at. And he's just like, I've had it, you know, like I've had it with these, like, you know, not earthlings. He doesn't call them. A, he just, he's pissed off because, you know, people are just on his last nerve because he just wants to be left alone and wants there to be peace and people just keep uh, being people. <laughs> yeah. Have you, uh, by chance, I, I know on uh, Into a Weird episode, you guys were, uh, you were discussing or debating on whether or not you were going to get Disney Plus. Did you ever end up signing up for Disney Plus at all? I have not yet. No, Herman still has it though. Cause he had it like he was going to do the trial and then kind of like maybe Wayne, but he kept it. And I think, uh, cause they're kind of on, uh, a bit of a quarantine now okay. um, over there. Cause they were doing good over there, but then it, it crept in over there too. So he's, they're pretty much sitting at home. So he's like, well, we might as well keep Disney plus <laughs> because there is a, uh, you know, the nineties silver surfer cartoon, which I never saw as a kid. Uh, I didn't, no existed until so much later but they have that on there it's only 13 episodes i have a couple episodes left in my my rewatch but that is fantastic Uh, oh is it it is there's some trippy elements and stuff but it's a pretty fantastic uh very well animated and everything and just the silver surfer design everything is like lifted from john bishima's silver surfer work it is like this perfect mashup of you just see the the kirby and bishima influences in it and it's it is a gorgeous cartoon to look at and the, the plots are, are pretty good and, and solid too so if you do do decide to to dip in definitely uh give that a check that out it, it's a great cartoon 
Yeah, I'll have to because honestly, the only '90s Marvel cartoon I watched was Spider-Man. I don't know why I didn't because you know, I figured they had Silver Surfer. There was Hulk, wasn't there? Fantastic Four. They did a bunch of them, didn't they? Yeah, I have a lot of fondness for that Fantastic Four one, but the the first season of that is is not fantastic. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> the, the second season is really good. I, I think it was the same animation studio then that did the Silver Surfer one, but the yeah. the second season of that really hits its stride as a gorgeous cartoon and a stronger plots, more developed plots and pull a lot more from the, some of the, the burn stuff in that second season of that. Oh, okay. And then it, it was around that same time. And the, the X-Men cartoon got a lot better too. The, you know, the first season oh, of that is, yeah. is a little rough, um, but you know, the stories are pretty good, but the animation is not that great. Um, and then it's really season two. It really hits its stride that, you know, they adapt a lot of the classic kind of, Claremont, Byrne, Cockrum era stories, um, but they mm-hmm. do some character swap outs to kind of with the characters of the time uh, taking place in there. And the, they're, I think, pretty strong adaptions. And the animation really steps up there in season two or season three, right? As they kind of start to amp into the, the Phoenix and Dark Phoenix sagas, the animation really ticks up there. Yeah, I so, guess. I- I guess I told a lie. Yeah, I did watch X-Men, too. I thought that cartoon was great. And like you said, yeah, the first season, eh, a little sketchy. But then after that, they really started to gain momentum. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah, for the sure. Spider-Man ones uh, on there, too. I've been rewatching that with my son. He likes oh. the, the Iron Man cartoon. That one's oh, yeah, Iron kind of rough, too. too. I forgot about that one, is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, hey, maybe let's be, uh, you know, hey, for a seven-year-old, that's probably not too bad. Yep. They're probably, they could probably hold their attention at least for a while with, you know, everything going with Iron Man. I mean, hopefully it yep. doesn't, hopefully they don't adapt Demon in a Bottle or anything like that. <laughs> no, no, but, uh, and I, I loved that cartoon when I was a kid. It was on at like 6.30 in the morning. I would wake up before school on weekdays and, and watch it. So, I mean. Yeah, maybe it was a, a time thing or a channel thing, but yeah, I just, I mean, X-Men, you know, and Batman, of course, that was huge, too. I love that one. That was really, really good. But, yeah, these other ones, I just I just missed them for some reason. I don't even know if I knew they were on at the time. Maybe it was like five years later till I knew they were like, oh, they did that. And I had to kind of go back. I think I saw some of them in reruns, but not very many. So, yeah, I'll have to be on the lookout for that. Maybe I that'll just keep sweetening the pot here for me to maybe uh, sign up for Disney+. Plus. <laughs> yeah. And as we record this, we have two episodes of Loki have dropped and I have found both very enjoyable. And so has my wife. That's pretty, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. Just Herman enjoys them. So, yeah. So yep. good. Nothing else. You could uh, sign up for a month or two and just binge the, sh- sorry, I don't know if I can swear. I was going to say binge the shit. Uh, binge <laughs> a bunch of those. Uh, and at least get your, I think it'd be, I think it's like eight bucks a month. So binge your $16 worth in a two month span and, get caught up on your live action shows and uh, yeah. with us for, with the, the kids, it's a no brainer. I mean, uh, oh one, yeah. One of my daughters is home all day with uh, a nurse. So just put Disney on and shut her up with all the, the shows they have there. So, yeah, so. They, I mean, I'm sure their catalog is huge on there. I mean, I'm sure it's not everything, but just even gosh, even, you know, the past 30 years, think about that. That's TV for, <laughs> yeah, that's a ton of content right there. Yep. All right. So, all right. Well, yeah. And we got two more pinups here, too, then a Spidey and a Silver Surfer. And that Silver Surfer looks like it's, uh, that's definitely a cover there. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, I believe that that's one. the cover to number one. Okay. Yeah. Cause that one looks super familiar to me. The other one, the Spidey image looks like something from, you know, a Slurpee cup or something like that. So I'm sure that's like a, 
you know, probably a Romita image that was on a t-shirt or something. It definitely looks like that to me. Yeah. But, um, oh, and then the back cover to this too is super cool. What do you think of that? The whole, the, the back cover to this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a great montage there. Again, Spider-Man's kind of swinging in as kind of the, the centerpiece was left hands holding the webbing line and then shooting out of his right hand is in, down towards the, the bottom corner. I guess it'd be the bottom, as you look at it as the reader, the bottom left-hand corner. So it kind of makes a nice dividing line diagonally from the top corner down to the bottom. And then we kind of get that broken up by his legs and everything into four images to detail kind of the four stories. So Thor versus the Hulk, uh, Spider-Man versus Silver Surfer, Cap and Daredevil, and then Thing versus Namor. That's a nice image. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, uh, Subby has some really long legs, but other than that, it's there. Those are pretty four pretty he's, solid images. <laughs> he's got a swimmer's body. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. But oh, man. Yeah. So, yeah, this one ton of fun. I just kind of like was snooping around looking at the prices on this because when I would go to shows, you know, a few years ago, every once in a while, you could still find somebody selling those for like 10 bucks a pop, which is not bad. So I thought, I wonder what these are going for now. And if you go on eBay and look for this issue in like decent shape, I think it was at least like 50 bucks. Oh, wow. I, I was like, holy crap. And I'm like, well, I'm glad I got some of these when I did, because I might not be able to get the other ones. It's like, whoa. Yeah. Prices really, on, on comics um, and collectibles in this area have just absolutely exploded. Yeah, I kind of felt the like ever since. Ever since the, especially since the movie started coming out, it's like, holy crap, back issue market went crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, the good thing is, is maybe they'll start reprinting them. I mean, DC has been going through and doing hardcover reprints of a lot of their treasuries. Marvel's got that new, they call it the gallery size. And they've been reprinting some of their stories and that gallery size is essentially the same as this classic treasury. They are of course making new treasuries that are not quite the same dimension, which is a frustrating thing from a, Someone like me who wants to put them all together, but um, collectors, yeah, standpoint, yeah. But the, like they did just reissue the Marvel Treasury Special, the Captain America's Bicentennial Battles in a hardcover, and uh, I believe that is the same dimension as the original one. Um, you know, there was they redid the or they released the Roy Thomas Neil Adams kind of Savage Land X Men stories mm. into a gallery edition. I believe that is essentially Treasury size. Wow. And so is uh, they also did the Claremont Blevins. Uh, God Love, Man Kills, X-Men oh, yeah. story in that gallery edition format. And I think there's uh, some Starlin Warlock or maybe it's the Starlin Death of Captain Marvel coming out in that size as well oh, on the cool. horizon. Wow. Yeah, I've, I haven't really checked out too many of those. I mean, some of them I have that material already. So if I even think I have it, I kind of just, you know, it goes in one ear and out the other with some of that. But I need to keep an eye on some of it because if I don't have it, that might be the only chance to get it at a decent price, but I think the cap bicentennial battles, I think Marvel put out a trade with that material in it that I have uh, like yeah, a soft cover. They did. And it's also in the uh, Jack Kirby omnibus, uh, Captain America omnibus, which would be essentially Captain America omnibus number four, uh, which that just got a recent re-release here in the last couple of months as well. So that's out there. Wow. Yeah. That'd be great to have though. I think Marvel, they they do a pretty good job with those. I kind of felt like sometimes the binding on certain things isn't the best, and I think it's not going to last a long time. But most of the stuff I have, I feel like, is in pretty good shape, and it's it's built to last. 
yeah, I think their their more recent omnibus reprintings have been a little better binding. Yeah, I mean, for $125, I think that's what they're going for. They should be. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Okay. All right. Well, hey, man, thanks for uh, chiming in here with me. I'm uh, glad you came to join me on this. So why don't you uh, let everybody know where they can find you out there, your show and uh, all your Twitter stuff and all that. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is KSCGSF, which is just the acronym for King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. That podcast feed is available through, I believe, like Stitcher. And I listen to everything on Apple Podcasts, so it's it's definitely out there. Uh, just search for KSC GSF. Uh, the show headquarters are King Size Comics Giant Size Fun blogspot.com. So you can download episodes directly uh, there. Otherwise, you can download the episodes off of Lipson. I believe that is just Lipson.kscgsf. Uh, you can go to my my Twitter handle and find all this stuff. Uh, and so I release episodes very sporadically and in bunches. And so it's getting towards the tail end of June here. <laughs> I'm paying for a feed thing. So there'll be a bunch of shows dropping here uh, this week <laughs> to finally uh, get around and knock out some recordings or all the notes I have. So uh, you want to listen to my grading voice ramble on uh, comics by myself? Uh, that's where you can find me. Yeah, I know. I, you, I think you had a bunch come out in March and April. And I have a huge commute for work. So I fired through them in, you know, basically a day, maybe a day and a half. <laughs> so it's, I'm always looking for content. I'm like, oh, when's this coming out? When's that coming out? So when I see stuff pop up on, uh, you know, the Apple podcast there, it's like, yep, download it right away. So always looking for that uh, comic book content. Definitely love to hear. I think the last one you did was a, uh, comic about a baseball player was it not i think yes it was it's bob fellers from iowa uh, the heater from van meter and that story was actually drawn by gene colon yeah i remember thinking oh i would love to have that i mean i don't know if that's even available anymore or something like that probably digital would be the best way to go for so actually adult. what i found on that so there's this it, it's in public domain so you oh can wow get it off the um like uh like the comic book plus is the golden age public okay. domain website i always use but yeah uh, the publisher guandana land i think i'm saying that right takes oh, all yeah. those public domain stories and they'll yep. print them both in black and white as well as color yeah. uh, they actually have made it's either them or another company like them have made color reprints of those individual issues there was i think three or four in that bob feller series um, and you can get those for like eight bucks off of amazon or something like that so uh, yeah there are reprint options out there yeah, I've bought uh, probably, I don't know, maybe about 10 trades from that Guandana land of um, the uh, Skywall, the horror magazines. Oh, okay. Yeah, because, boy, if you want to buy those in decent shape, you, you'll go broke. They're like, <laughs> you go to eBay and look for those, and like the ones in, sometimes they're like in tatters, and people want $15, $20 for them and in decent shape yeah. there even more than that. So I was like, man, and then when I saw these, I'm like, whoa, you can get four issues in a trade for, I think it's less than 15 bucks. So it's like, oh, wow, yeah, it's, it's a no brainer. You know what I mean? If you have prime, it's free shipping in two days too. So it's like, yep. they, they show up and they do a pretty good job with them. And I will give them credit too. Sometimes I've seen where they put out a trade and there was a page missing or, uh, something with the printing went a little haywire and they, uh, they then uh, they send you a freebie of the the updated one with the you know the, they'll get the page and scanned in and all that stuff and then they'll send you a freebie too so they're really good about that so even if you would get something that's in 
you know, up to par or missing something or whatever, they send you a freebie, which is awesome. You don't have to haggle, fight, nothing. I think you just message the guy and he's okay and puts you on a list and boom, as soon as it's printed, he sends it to you. So oh, that's that awesome. Yeah, that guy's pretty good. Lance something or other's his name. I cannot remember his name. Sorry, Lance. Lance something or other. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, really cool guy. I think I'm in a group um, uh, on Facebook with uh, him in it. And, you know, I think it's, I don't know that he runs the group, but he's in there, you know, says kind of yeah. what's uh, coming up. But, uh, yeah, seems like a real good guy. But, yeah, Guandana Land, look him up on uh, Amazon because uh, good stuff there. A lot of public domain stuff that you can read digitally for free but if you want a paper copy it's some of it's yeah just crazy you can't even find some of it to be honest with you very tough to find but yeah and they're very affordable and they do multiple formats they'll even do kind of the essential style of just the, the black and white line art for if you want it cheaper so mm -hmm. the uh the one collection i've gotten from them is the collection of uh, jackie robinson comics that fossil oh, wow. out in the, the early 50s i bought yeah. the, the black and white version and so that that's pretty awesome yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm definitely I was looking into buying some of the hard covers of some uh, like pre code comics. And uh, I was looking into buying some trades of I can't remember who it was that put those out like hard covers real nice, but he has them, you know, like you said, you can get them. I think he has them in color and in black and white and the black and white is super cheap and horror to me in black and white is never a bad thing. That's that's usually pretty good, you know, unless you, you're looking for the, the blood effect where you need yeah. the red or something like that. Otherwise, horror is pretty good in black and white. So I thought I just might just grab the black and white for a fraction of what the color hardcover trades. I don't know if it was Dark Horse or somebody put something out. And I'm like, man, that's a lot of money to, to drop on a hardcover or something. And I uh, just might go that paperback route and get that good stuff anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks once again, Kyle, yeah, for joining me. Board. Yeah, man, this is great. Yeah, the love talking comics, man. These uh, treasuries, uh, we'll have to talk about another one coming up soon. Uh, I'd love because I don't know too many other people that are, you know, other than you and Rob Kelly that are really uh, treasury nuts. <laughs> yeah, Mike from uh, Comics in the Golden Age is another one. So. Oh, yeah, he does like them too. Yeah, I when I think of him, I always think of just like Disney comics, like Scrooge McDuck, man. He is like... He has got so many of those comics. It's just unreal. I can't believe how many of those he has. And they're they're not easy to find and easy to get either. No, they are not. Nope. So, uh, yeah, Fanagraphics has done a great job reprinting all those. So I got a bunch of those hard covers and have, uh, you know, a number of the, the big ones as far as kind of big special uh, appearances, uh, kind of some of the, the Scrooge and Donald characters as well. So. Yeah, that's that's something he and I have chatted. Uh, I was just about. gonna say, yeah, I was just gonna say. I thought I heard you and him talk about a was it a, a European edition or something? Maybe. Uh, I think we talked. Yeah, I was telling him about some European editions. Oh, on, okay. Uh, on and then he was telling me too about some of the ones he'd picked up while he was over there on vacation. That was uh, we did some Christmas episode coverage that did some Carl Bark stories and then kind of a, a sequel. Yeah, that was originally printed over there in in italy and then idw had been just reprinting uh, stories that were original to to europe bringing them over to the u.s and translating them for the first time when they wow. license so so yeah we talked about a classic and then yeah kind of a newer one and then yeah i think we kind of gotten some tangents about some of the individual kind of exclusive stories over there um so disney comics are huge over there especially uh kind of the north like uh some Dutch Dutch publishers put out like a ton of Donald and Scrooge stories kind of set in that same Karl Barks world. 
Cool. Yeah, I think that's definitely what it was. That was what I heard. You guys were given recommendation and he said about them like you were just saying overseas. And I'm like, yep, that's where I got that from. But all right. Well, yeah, definitely look for Kyle on, uh, yeah, Comics in the Golden Age and some Fire and Water appearances. And then your uh, shows that should be dropping soon, too. I'm hoping to get this one out by the end of the week. So hopefully it'll be out quick and then uh, you'll have yours dropping, too. So there'll be plenty of stuff out there for everybody to listen to. So, again, thank you, Kyle. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, that wraps up episode 11. Once again, I'd like to thank Kyle Benning for coming on the show, uh, talking some uh, Treasury Edition with me, and hopefully I'll have him on again in the future and we can talk about another one. So I'll be looking forward to that. And just a heads up, the next episode, instead of alternating to a movie, is going to be another comic book episode. And that's going to be a fun one, too, because I'm going to have a special guest on with me to talk about not only a comic book, uh, but also a book that uh, this uh, person wrote as well. So get ready for that one. So that one should be dropping sometime in uh, early July, maybe the second week of July. So be on the lookout for that one. All right. Take care, everybody.